morning. Well, we continue today with our study of Philippians, and today we get into chapter 3. And if you are familiar with Philippians chapter 3, you know how rich this section is. There are some of those phrases, some of those passages that uh, that just stick with us. Paul talks about how he is longing for the resurrection, and he counts all things as loss in contrast to the righteousness that he has in Christ and, and the hope of the resurrection. We're going to talk about that. There's so much great stuff here. And uh, fair warning, we're going to go slowly. Uh, I don't know how, how many days we'll be in Philippians chapter 3, but I want us to get it. It's so rich, and uh, there's so much wonderful stuff here. So we're gonna we're gonna work our way through it pretty slowly. So glad you're with us. Uh, good morning, Martha. Good morning, Keith. Good morning, Jenny. Uh, for those of you who are joining us later via podcast or watching this on the replay, uh, glad you could come along with us as well. Good morning, Bashir. Good to have you with us. Uh, it is a good day. Uh, today's a good day because the Lord Jesus made this day, and we will. We will, we must rejoice and be glad in this day because of what Christ has done. And that's, uh, we're going to see in this uh, little little bit we're going to cover this morning, the Apostle Paul made it so clear why we have to be a joyful people. So let's dig in to chapter three. He begins with, finally, my brothers. Now, on behalf of all of my fellow pastors and teachers out there, I, I need to draw attention to this word, finally. You know what it means when the pastor, of a, when he's preaching, when he says, finally, right? It means nothing. <laughs> and we sometimes think Paul here is just being a typical preacher. He says, finally, and then he's got two chapters left. Half the book remains. Um, but uh, just so you know, in the, uh, in the Greek here, uh, the word that's translated finally also, by the time Paul's using it, could mean um, something like well then. So it, it's not necessarily that he is drawing a conclusion and then thinks of all these other things that he wanted to say, but it could be that he is simply transitioning to the next section. So, uh, you know, I sort of feel like I have to defend all of us preachers when we say my last point, and then they still have 25 minutes left or whatever. Anyway, so finally, my brethren, or well then, my brethren, and then he gives this admonition, rejoice in the Lord. Now, he's talked about rejoicing. He's going to come back to this concept of rejoicing in chapter four. We'll see it there. But here he adds the the for, for the first time in this letter he adds this very important little phrase rejoice in the lord it's a good day we said that it's a day to rejoice and be glad and you think well uh, life is hard there's there's a lot of challenges not everything is going great how do we rejoice in that what if uh, what if you've experienced great evil are we to rejoice in that no we don't rejoice in the circumstances themselves, but in the Lord, we always have reason to rejoice. In fact, Paul is going to, or he already has exemplified for us what it means to rejoice in the Lord in spite of circumstances. Let me, let me put it this way. What are the things that keep us from rejoicing? Well, Certainly one of the things is when hardships come, when trials come. But he's already given us the example of, of 
not letting circumstances diminish his joy. Let me call you back to what he said in chapter one. Remember here in verse 15, he said, some to be sure are preaching Christ from envy and strife. So he's talking about how there are gospel preachers all over the place. And some of them are preaching Christ uh, from these motives, from envy, from strife. Some do it out of love. Some do it out of uh, causing, wanting to cause P, or Paul distress. Look at this. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress. There are some folks who are preaching the gospel, hoping it will cause Paul to suffer. And we looked at that back in chapter one. So verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Imagine having that kind of devotion to the Lord, where even if people are doing things to hurt you, but it means that Christ is honored somehow, Paul says, I don't care what's happening to me. This circumstance, this situation brings glory to Christ and in that, I will rejoice. He goes on and says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers to the Holy Spirit. He knows the Lord's going to provide, so he rejoices. Then a little bit later in chapter 2, verse 17, he said, Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. We referred back to this yesterday as well. If he ends up dying, right? remember he's in prison, he's in jail. He's chained to the wall or sometimes chained to a jailer. And he says, it's possible I will be poured out. I will be um, sacrificed on the altar. Maybe I'll die in my worship, my, my liturgy. Remember we looked at that? Uh, if that's true, I will rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And then he goes on to talk about sending Epaphroditus to them and says, honor him and rejoice in his coming and rejoice and receive joy from him. All of these things are examples of Paul saying, your circumstances must not destroy your joy. Now, let's just let that sink in for a minute. Look back to yesterday. Were you glad if you joined us in this study, we started yesterday like we start off every day, reminding ourselves, God made this day. The Lord Jesus made this day, and we are rejoicing in it. We are glad in it. Well, were you glad yesterday? Were you rejoicing yesterday? If not, what robbed you of joy? Maybe distraction. Maybe you forget. That's why we need to be reminded of these things. It's, it's why I start every, uh, every class, every lesson with this re reminder. Maybe it's because you were looking at your circumstances and seeing how things didn't turn out the way you wanted them to. Did Paul want to be in jail? No. But he rejoiced because Christ was honored. What happened to you yesterday that you allowed to diminish your joy in the Lord? Whatever that was, learn from it and say, okay, yesterday is gone, but today I am not going to allow my circumstances to diminish my joy in the Lord. 
Again, this does not mean we are happy about everything that happens. We're certainly not happy about evil. But we can rejoice in the Lord. And that takes focus. That takes concentration. We, we have to be intentional about this. And this is why it's a command here. Paul says, rejoice. This is in, it, this is in the imperative tense in the Greek. That is the commanding tense. Rejoice. I'm commanding you, rejoice in the Lord. So one of the things that keeps us from rejoicing is uh, our circumstances. Another is false teaching. There are many threats to the gospel. There are many teachers that are teaching a false gospel. Uh, remember, we've discussed this, how the enemy of our souls wants to get our eyes off of the purity of the gospel. And the church is, is inundated with teachers who claim to be Christians who are preaching a false gospel. And there's a great threat to the purity of the gospel. And, and these days, it's easier than ever. People like me can get on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, and we can have podcasts, and we can teach, which is great if we're teaching truth. Think of all the resources. Um, this one is just one of them. You could be watching and listening to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of podcasts and videos on, on quote-unquote Christianity. But there are plenty, probably more uh, of the type that are teaching falsehood. And they sound good at first, but they, they lead you astray. We have to be careful because everything is at stake when we believe a false gospel and it robs us of joy. If you have teachers who are filling your head with false teaching, it robs you of joy. Well, Paul is going to address the predominant false teaching of his day, and he's going to come out with some pretty strong words against them. So I'm curious. Uh, good morning, Karen. I see you there. I'm curious as we go here, what false teaching do you think is the biggest threat to the gospel today? If you care to share that with us, I'll put it in the chat. If you're on Facebook or YouTube, I can see your comments. So just put it in the chat there. What, what false doctrine, false teaching do you think is the biggest threat to the church today? In Paul's day, it was the Jews. It was Judaism. And we're going to spend some time thinking about that here. Paul says, to write the same things is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Now, the question is, what does he mean by same things? Probably he's referring to things that he taught them when he was with them. Whether this was way back at the beginning when he began the church in, uh, in Philippi, whether he you know, started this church, or things that he has sent to them in other letters, or maybe he's visited them and shared these things. But he's, he's going to remind them of the same things that he has already told them. And he says, it's not a trouble to me. Uh, any good teacher will repeat his lessons over and over and over again. Peter said this. He said, I'm going to remind you of these things. And it was in the similar context, by the way. Peter reminded them of things um, in the context of false teaching because the church is constantly under threat of false teaching. And he said, I know my days are, are limited. I know my time is coming. The Lord had revealed to him his time was short. He says, so I'm going to remind you to watch out for the false teachers 
and hold fast to the truth. And I'm going to say it again and again and again. And Paul does the same thing. To, to say the same things here is no trouble for me because I need to say it again. And he says, it is a safeguard for you. We are such a forgetful people. Are we not? We, we learn something, we hear something, it impacts us. We think, yes, I'm going to hold fast to this. And then the enemy is just so subtle. And he is not afraid of uh, repetition. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And he presents his teaching to you using uh, professing Christians, and it looks good. It sounds good. He quotes the scripture. I mean, Satan has always quoted the scripture. Then he twists it and he distorts it and leads people astray. We need the safety of having teachers who will repeat over and over again the truth. Nate here brings up a couple of, uh, of these fantastic uh, examples here. He says, health and wealth, prosperity. Absolutely. That is so predominant. And think about the subtlety of the health and wealth prosperity gospel. The scripture does talk about God's blessing us and, and finding favor with him. And, and we sow, we reap what we sow and those kind of things. Remember, we, we looked at this in other contexts when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and all these other things will be given to you. And what's the, what are these other things? Food, clothing, prosperity. Yeah, the, for many Christians, not all, there are exceptions, for, but for many of us, we experience God's favor and blessing in material things. There's nothing wrong with that. So these health and wealth guys can take those truths and twist it and distort it so that the purity of the gospel is is destroyed. And all the things that the scripture says about suffering and tribulation and looking forward to the next age when we will truly experience uh, prosperity beyond our, our imagination. It sounds good and it's so appealing to what we want these guys slip in and uh, and bring great destruction. Uh, Nate added another one here. Secular humanism from the outside. Absolutely. Uh, this naturalistic uh, secularism, evolutionary theory, all of those playing together. Keith says that we need to do something to win his love and forgiveness. Yeah, salvation by works. Uh, the, the, uh, the enemy has taught that and taught that over and over again. And Paul's going to address that here in uh, Philippians chapter three. Yeah, great thoughts. None of those are the purity of the gospel and we have to always be careful and we need teachers who will safeguard us with the truth of the gospel. So I'll tell you again, as I've told you many times, be very, very careful who you allow to teach you, who you allow to influence your thinking. We soak in things. And the more we listen to podcasts and read books, watch videos and listen to music even of things that are false, the greater the temptation to sin. Paul says, on the other hand, I am writing these same same things to you and there's no trouble here uh, for me to do that because you need it. Okay, so let's get into it. The greatest threat in Paul's day, in the, in the first century, the greatest threat to the gospel 
were the Jews. And Paul knew this firsthand as he's going to go on and describe. He is a Jew of Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul had the equivalent of two or three PhDs in theology. He had been raised in a, uh, a Jewish setting, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most respected Jewish teachers of all time. Um, he had great intellect, great academic training, and he was devout. He was committed to the Old Testament. He was committed to the truth of God. And he had all the advantage you could, advantages you could possibly have as a Jew. So he knew Judaism inside out and backwards. And he now realizes Judaism was the greatest threat to the gospel in the first century. Who are the ones that crucified Jesus? Well, the Romans are the ones who actually nailed Jesus' hands to the cross. But they did so because the Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah, and clamored for his execution. They hated him. The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sadducees, all of these groups of leaders, their wealth and their power and their religious control of the people were, was bound up in their authority. And Jesus came and said, you're all hypocrites. You're self-righteous, and I have come as the Messiah to fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament. And the Jews of his day hated him and put him on the cross. And they hated the followers of Jesus because the, the Christian teaching was, the messianic teaching was, everything in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. He's the true temple. He's the true sacrifice. He's the high priest. He's the lawgiver. He's the greater Moses. He's the seed of Abraham who would come. He's the seed of the woman who would come. He is the heir to the throne of David who would reign over the universe. All of those things that we read about in the Old Testament were giant arrows pointing to Jesus. And the Jews despised that teaching because if the fulfillment has come, then that means all of the shadows from the Old Testament fade away and now give way to the light, the true light, the true substance. And since they had clung to the Old Covenant and the Old Testament as the law of God and the temple of God and the, the sacrifice of God and all those things, they lost their power and control when Jesus came because now he says, I'm the king, you worship me, you follow me, you listen to me. And so it hit him in the pocketbook, it hit him in their power, and they despised him. And what was the mark of the Jew? Let me know in the comments if you know this. What was the mark? What is it that marked someone out as a Jew in the Old Testament and the times of Jesus? What was that which every Jew had to, um, <laughs> I don't want to give it away. So if you probably know what I'm going to say, what was the, what was it that every Jewish man, every Jewish male had to, 
mark himself with to verify that he was a Jew? What was it that joined the Jew to the old covenant? And I've pretty much given it away by now. I'm sure that uh, most of you know. Yes, Bashir got it. Circumcision. The physical mark in the body. Okay. Well, Paul is going to, um, uh, Keith got it very good. Paul's going to expose the falsehood of requiring circumcision and Judaism in his day. Uh, this was common, a common uh, battle in that first century. Do you remember what the very first controversy the church had to deal with was? It was this very question. Let me show you in, in uh, Acts chapter 15 here. Some men came down from Judea. Remember, that's the uh, area surrounding Jerusalem. And they were teaching the brethren that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Here in Acts 15, we have what is often referred to as the uh, Jerusalem Council, the first gathering of the church of Christian leaders to wrestle with a question that needs to be answered because uh, there's someone teaching something that appears to be misleading, and they need to wrestle with it. Uh, this Later on, they would have the, the Council of Nicaea, for instance, which produced what we call the Nicene Creed. And uh, the battle there was over the triune nature of God. Is, how do we make sense of the Bible's teaching of the nature of God? Is there one God? Are there three gods? Uh, yet the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are presented as, as unique in some way, or at least distinct. So what do we do with that? And the church came together because uh, some false teaching had come in and were influencing the church, got into the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, all of those things. And the church settled it on the two natures of Jesus. He's man and God. And the one nature of God with the three persons, that's what we call the Trinity. Well, uh, in Jerusalem, in, uh, in the early church, the first great controversy was over this question. Does the law of Moses still apply to the Christians? Do, do all these Gentiles who are coming to Christ, do they need to become Jews? Do they need to be circumcised and submit to the law of Moses? So that's the question. And these folks from Judea, these Jews, were saying, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. They would acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. They were fine with that. So long as these Philippians and Galatians and Ephesians and Romans and every other pagan Gentile culture, so long as everyone who came to Christ would practice circumcision and submit to the law of Moses. And they said, you can't be saved if you don't become a Jew. So the church wrestled with this and they talked. And as chapter 15 of Acts goes on, uh, Paul shared his experience, and he says, look, I've been preaching the gospel all over the Gentile world. And the Lord is pouring out his spirit on all these Gentiles, and none of them are being circumcised. None of them are submitting to the law of Moses, and yet the, the, the Lord is sending his spirit and giving them faith like ours. Barnabas shared his experience along with Paul. Same thing, Peter 
shows up and says, guys, remember I was sent to Cornelius. I was sent to these, these Gentiles. And while I was preaching the gospel to them, the spirit came down and they all started speaking in tongues, showing that the spirit had been poured out on them. This is before they were circumcised. In fact, none of them became circumcised. And God showed his favor to them and poured out his spirit. And then James, the brother of Jesus, stood up and he quoted from Amos and said, the Lord had prophesied this would all take place, that God would include the Gentiles. And so they settled the question in that very council as to whether or not the Gentile converts needed to be circumcised and submit to the law of Moses. And the answer was an emphatic no. Well, this upset the Jews, and they despised Paul and Peter and the rest who were teaching this. And anywhere and everywhere they could, they opposed the teaching of Paul. Remember Paul's MO? He would go into a city, and he would first go into the synagogue. And his hope was to convert the Jews. He knew the gospel was first for the Jews. And so he would preach the gospel there and say, look, my Jewish brothers, let me read to you from Isaiah and from the law of Moses and from the other prophets. And let me persuade you that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. The Messiah has come. And sometimes the Lord's spirit would convert Jews and they would agree with Paul that Jesus is the Messiah. But then what so often happened, and you can read about this all throughout the book of Acts. So often what happened was the Jewish leaders of those synagogues began to realize, whoa, if these people start following Paul and start following Jesus and throw off the old covenant, then again, we lose our money, we lose our power, we lose our influence. And so after a while, the Jews would turn on Paul and they would persecute him. Uh, sometimes stoning him with stones, beating him with rods. We see a few places where he's left for dead because the Jews are so angry at him. So Paul would go to the synagogue and preach the gospel there, hoping to convert the Jews. And then when they finally got fed up with him and kicked him out, then he would go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel to the pagans there. That was his, his MO. Well, the Jews followed him around and they did everything they could to shut him down. Remember, at some point, we see this in, in the later chapters of Acts, Paul goes back to Jerusalem and some Jews had followed him from other cities and said, that's the man that's teaching against our custom. That's the one teaching against our law. He teaches against Moses and against circumcision. And that's what led to the eventual arrest of Paul. And then he had to appeal to Caesar so that he could get to Rome to preach the gospel there. The Jews hated Paul. Paul, because he was undermining circumcision and the law. And in an interesting statement of irony here, Paul says to the Philippians, beware of the dogs. Now that's ironic because the chief insult of the Jews toward Gentiles was that they were dogs. Dogs were unclean. Don't think of dogs as pets. Many of you have dogs in your home and you love them They're like one of your kids and, 
and they get sick and you'll take them to a veterinarian and pay hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to care for them. That would have been the most absurd thing in the world in the first century to ever pay a penny to keep a dog healthy. Dogs were unclean. They were mangy. They were scavenger-like. They would eat anything. Remember the scripture says a dog returns to his vomit. Dogs would spit up and then go eat it. (laughs) Sorry to ruin your breakfast this morning. Uh, It was a great insult to be called a dog. The Jews called the Gentiles dogs. They would eat unclean foods. They were cursed. They They were grotesque animals. And Paul here turns the tables and calls the Jews dogs. He says, beware of the evil workers. The Jews held fast to the works of the law, the law of Moses. And Paul here refers to them as evil workers. And then he uses a greatly ironic statement, which is translated here, beware of the false circumcision But if you have a little index note, like in my Bible, here it says, beware of the mutilation. And tomorrow, we will come back and look at chapter 2 and see the irony and see what it is that has got Paul so worked up that he would call the Jews dogs and evil workers and mutilators. So have a great day. Grace and peace to you. Blessings from our Lord. Don't let your joy be robbed. As you go through this day, think about what false teaching may have influenced your mind that is robbing you of the purity of the gospel and the joy that should be ours. Ponder that and rejoice and be glad. Until tomorrow, we'll see you then. God bless.